Good evening, everyone. I'm Sarit Zahavi. I'm a CEO and founder. Thank you for joining us today. Our panel today will deal with the Iranian nuclear threat, and I am honored uh, to have Dr. Iran Lerman with us and Elit Barel. Uh, for those of us who are not familiar with Alma's work, we are an independent and non-partisan organization. We are a research and education center that focuses on Israel's security challenges along the northern borders. Uh, we see it as our personal uh, mission, we all live up north, by the way, to provide research and analysis of the geopolitical reality and the development regarding Israel's security challenges on its northern borders. Yet, I must say that uh, since the operation in Gaza, uh, we understand that we have a lot of contri contribution with regards to security on borders, not specifically northern, not only northern borders. Uh, we are situated in Israel's northern Galilee, only six miles from the border with Lebanon. And uh, we encounter these security challenges in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, Lebanon and Syria and their effect on Israel's security, mainly Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Iranian development of proxies uh, all over the region, especially in Syria, and the second Hezbollah in Syria. So you're invited to check out our website and to see all the special report that we've issued, the COVID-19 was an excellent opportunity to develop our research department in this. And now uh, to our uh, panel, uh, which will deal with the Iranian nuclear threat. And I'm honored to have Aran Lerman and Elit Barel. Um, just this week, uh, last Monday, uh, US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said with regard to the JCPOA, if Tehran continues to violate the pact, at the breakout time it needs to amass enough fissile material for a single nuclear weapon will shrink to weeks. Uh, this went uh, unnoticed in international media and we will try to find out what will this mean for us uh, in Israel, in the region, uh, if Iran will become a nuclear power. On the other hand, if the JCPOA will be renewed, will this mean that Iran will never become a nuclear power? Indeed, complicated topic. Uh, Alma, our audience online here, we're not scientists, we're not phys physicians, and yet we will try in the next hour to clarify some of the terms that were thrown around. Uh, what's the status of this uh, nuclear program? What is this JCPOA, the old one and the new one? and what's the advantages and disadvantages uh, in it. So in order to do so, uh, I want to begin with uh, Dr. Iran Lerman, who is the Deputy Director for Foreign Policy and International Affairs uh, at the National Security Council in the Israeli Prime Minister's Office. He held senior post- In 2015. 2015, uh, not too long ago. <laughs> uh, he held senior posts uh, in IDF military intelligence for over 20 years. Some of them we served together and Iran was my commander. Uh, he also served for eight years as director of the Israeli and Middle East Office of the American Jewish Committee. He teaches in the Middle East Studies program uh, at the Shalem College in Jerusalem and in postgraduate programs at Tel Aviv University and the National Defense College. He's an expert on Israel's foreign relations and the Middle East, a third generation Sabra, uh, wow. <laughs> he holds a PhD uh, from the London School of Economics and a mid-career MPA from Harvard University. Uh, 
Iran, I'm honored to have you with us. Iran uh, was also vice president of the Jerusalem Institute uh, for Strategy and Security. That's my Still. current position. Still. Uh, so I'm honored uh, to have you today. And I want to ask the first question, what is a nuclear bomb? Uh, what we need in order to have a nuclear bomb? What are the terms to develop a nuclear bomb? And there are so many expressions like centrifuges and uh, I don't know, uh, fissile materials. And what's the difference? Well, what, what exactly is the process? And when exactly Iran is in this process? Only I would appreciate if you can present the slide about that. Let me see if I can explain the unexplainable quickly. <laughs> For a country to have, to have uh, the status of a military nuclear power, it needs a combination of three things. It needs uh, fissile material, and I'll explain, exact, I'll explain as best I can what that means. It needs the capacity to package this fissile material into a device, a bomb, that can be deliverable and can be uh, ignited, can be um, uh, used at the moment of choice the, 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 and, and not explode in the face of those who are building it. And the third element is to uh, have the capacity, ballistic missiles or uh, by, by aircraft, um, to actually deliver such a device, such a, a bomb to its target. This put together, this is what it means for a country to cross the nuclear, military nuclear threshold which is what the Iranians have been seeking to do for the last, um, more, for, for more than 20 years now, against the background of their lessons from the Iran-Iraq war, but mainly against the background of their commitment for the destruction of Israel and the centrality of this commitment in the Iranian ideological and political, um, uh, I would say, foundations of the, of the revolutionary regime. Now, one by one. Uh, what is fissile material? I'm talking here about a regular nuclear bomb, not a thermonuclear uh, device, which is a different matter and, and irrelevant to our discussion now. Um, about um, 90 years ago, several scientists, by the way, luckily they were mostly Jews or anti-fascists or both, so they escaped to America. And so it was Einstein who explained to Roosevelt this issue before Hitler could get it. Uh, several scientists discovered that certain elements, or let's say uh, certain uh, uh, isotopes of certain elements at the highest end of, the, uh, of uh, the Mendeleev table, the heaviest elements existing on Earth, or, or one like plutonium is actually uh, manufactured by uh, human action, have a, are basically unstable. If you shoot one neutron into the nucleus, this is why this is called a nuclear bomb. If you shoot one neutron into the nucleus of a uranium-235 atom or a plutonium-239 atom, this atom would go in five different pieces. Two of them are, are lighter elements. It breaks into two pieces, large pieces, and they are the less important element in the story. The, the three elements which matter are two more neutrons will be emitted, so they will hit the next two 
atoms and then from there it will be four and from there it will be you know and and how it, 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 it this progresses very quickly if this fissile material is packed very closely so you have an explosion and the important thing is a tiny amount of matter in this event in this process a tiny amount of matter turns into pure energy becomes energy um, which is something that Einstein predicted could happen in his famous uh, um, theory of relativity. He had this equation, E equals M um, uh, C squared. C is 300,000 kilometers uh, per second, the, uh, the speed of light. So you can understand that C squared is a, 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 a very high number. So... For example, in the Hiroshima bomb, the amount of matter that actually turned into energy was more or less the, the size and weight of, a, uh, of one uh, uh, cent coin, or in Israel, I would say one shekel. And tiny amount, but this was enough to destroy a city because the, the e, e, e equals mc square means that a tiny amount of matter turning into energy uh, releases a huge amount of, of, uh, of energy at, uh, at, one, uh, at one given moment. So fissile material, that is to say these unstable elements that can be uh, broken to pieces, fissile means that they, are, they, they go into in pieces when they are hit by a neutron, are the key to, any, to a nuclear bomb. Now, um, plutonium doesn't even exist in nature. It is a product of what happens in a um, nuclear reactor. Nuclear reactor, you are using a small amount of uranium-235 uh, mixed up with uranium-238, which is the natural state of uh, most uranium in nature. 99.3% of all uranium in nature is 238, and 238 is not explosive. So it can be used uh, in, uh, in, in, for, for industrial purposes, but then you produce plutonium. And if you'd separate plutonium from the fuel rods of a nuclear reactor, you can, if you, this is a chemical procedure because it's a separate, different element. You, you, you separate the plutonium, concentrate it, and you can use it in a bomb. A bomb, normally a bomb would need about, uh, let's say, uh, for the sake of simplification, about 15 kilo, kilograms, uh, 30 pounds of, uh, of fissile material to be effective. Uh, so you need quite a lot of this uh, fissile material uh, to produce before you have enough fissile material for one bomb. And no country wants to have one bomb. The United States took a risk in uh, 45. It launched the only two bombs it had against Japan, and that was enough to finish the war. Uh, but in today's world, with many uh, counter capabilities, no country wants to gamble its entire future on one bomb. So we, we are looking for uh, countries would be looking like Iran are looking to build an arsenal, and an arsenal requires a larger pile of fissile material. So plutonium requires a chemical separation. 
Whereas uranium-235 exists in nature. But as I said, it's only 0.7% of the amount of natural uranium you would find in a, in a uranium mine. When you're mining uranium, you bring out uh, the, this, this metal, heavy metal. It's, people could refer to this as yellow cake, uh, uranium uh, oxide. And less than 1% is to is 235 when it's scattered like this in in um, the more stable isotope of uranium it will not explode if you fire a, a, a neutron uh, then some of the atoms would split and the neutrons would get lost and they would not have an effect in order to have a bomb that will explode you need highly concentrated uranium 235 you need to bring it to 94, more or less 94% of the material. That's called weapon grade uranium 235. Uh, at 3%, 4%, you can use it. This is the story of how you hide a military project as a civilian project. Uh, 3%, 4%, and for some purposes like uh, submarine and uh, uh, nuclear engines, 20%. You can enrich, that is to say, to concentrate the 235 uh, within the context of a civilian project. But it is the same nature of project that would also bring you to the capacity to enrich to 94%, which is military grade. Where are the Iranians today? What's the Iranians the have, have pushed toward now, in the last few uh, months or weeks, they've been pushing towards 60 Nobody enriches to 60 for any civilian purpose whatsoever. It is simply a way of saying, next step, 94. If you don't give us what we want, if you don't give us sanctions relief, we will go to military grade. That There's no other purpose familiar to, to anyone uh, for going to 60%. So, okay. Now, let yeah. me explain the centrifuges. Okay. Since there's a light, slight difference in weight between uranium-238 and uranium-235, if you make a gas out of it, uh, a fluoride, uh, that's UF6, it's a gas, very heavy gas, but it's a gas, and you spin it in a centrifuge, the, the, light, the slightly lighter element will fly a bit further out in the spin, so you can pick it up and concentrate it, and so step by step, you, uh, in a long, long, long cascade of centrifuges, you go from 0.7 to gradually to 3% or to 20% or to 60% and ultimately to 94% spinning your centrifuges. And of course, the Iranians had very basic centrifuges, which they obtained from Abdel Kader Khan, who was the Pakistani scientist who stole the process from the Dutch. He was a, working in a Dutch civilian facility and he stole the, the designs and, and, and used it for the Pakistani uh, military nuclear program. And then privately, not on behalf of his government, he sold these uh, secrets to the Iranians. But by now the Iranians have developed uh, more advanced and faster centrifuges. And once these are being installed, the, uh, uh, the time necessary for them to rush for enough fissile material for military capability will get shorter 
and shorter. This is the point that uh, Tony Blinken was making. But so as far as I understand, as far as I understand, let's see if I get you correctly, this is only the third line out of our small slide over here. Which and, but the most in. important, yes, but the most important one for, for two reasons. One, this is normally the bottleneck. This is where countries get stuck because a fissile, uh, to, to build a bomb you can do in, in the basement of a house. To separate your uh, plutonium or to enrich uranium using centrifuges, there are a few other procedures, but, but this is the popular one everywhere. Uh, using centrifuges, you need a large, vulnerable, big, vulnerable facility. So this is the bottleneck. Interesting. Uh, as to building the bomb, we now know for certain, but we knew beforehand. Uh, let's say from our intelligence sources, but by now we have the actual archive, that they have solved this, the, the basic problems of designing a bomb, how to bring the various pieces of fissile material together at the right moment so there is a, a critical mass that will explode. This is the trick, uh, the technical trick of building a bomb. And they have more or less mastered the uh, technical solutions to this already almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago. And then, by the way, they stopped because in 2003, the United States invaded Iraq. And the, by the way, uh, the Libyans got so scared that they gave away their nuclear project. And the Iranians were worried enough to halt and wait and let's see. And, you know, the Americans just finished Afghanistan, then Iraq, one long, one short, the third one will fall on us. So uh, the Iranians were very careful at that moment. They stopped and they decided to wait and see. Later, they began to realize that the United States will not attack them. Uh, the Bush administration was considering it, but then the intelligence community said, the Iranians are not working on a bomb, which was true in a technical sense because they, they halted, but not because they didn't have the intention. And this release of the National Intelligence Assessment in 2007 stopped the Bush administration in its tracks, and the Iranians began to realize that they are safe and returned to the main issue for them, namely fissile material. And this is what the JCPOA was all about, stopping their work on fissile material. Okay, we'll they, get to the JCPOA in a minute. Um, I want to move on to Elite, which is our next guest former executive director of the Council of Peace and Security, and has served in recent years as a member of its executive board. From 20 to 2002, Elite served as a director at the Israel National Security Council, heading the US-Israeli bilateral desk. Prior to that, she worked at the Congressional Research Service in Washington, DC, authoring several reports for Congress on issues related to weapons of mass destruction, and at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. Elite is the founding member and former executive board member of the Dvorah Forum for Women in Foreign Policy and National Security and of the Israel Nuclear Forum. Barel has a BA from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and MA in Public Policy from Harvard University. Elite, thank you so much for being with us today. So, in light of everything Dr. Lerman just explained, and you are an expert to proliferation, 
how did the Iranian got all of that? It's it's knowledge, it's materials, it's what? How did they do that? Uh, you know, they probably were not born with with this uh, very complicated knowledge, and there are a lot of sanctions. And how come they uh, gained so much progress in the past? Uh, how long is it? Eighteen years since the the program was exposed. Right, but obviously things started before the program was exposed. Um, if we can have the slide, I'm not sure if it's up, of the timeline. Um, and I can run you through that very quickly. Is it up? One minute. Yep. Um, so I'll start in the meantime saying that, like you said, it's knowledge, it's technology, but it's also motivation, which is um, a key factor in um, any such drive to obtain a nuclear military capability. Um, I'm going to go through this very quickly as to not uh, waste too much time. But the very start of Iran's civilian program was in the 1950s with the Shah, where the Americans actually um, supplied under the um, Atoms for Peace program, um, what were supposed to be reactors for civilian power. Um, but, um, and of course, uh, that was suspended immediately with uh, the, uh, the events of the late 70s and the revolution. But before that, in 1968, Iran was signed and a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which basically, upon, under which it takes these responsibilities not to pursue a military capability, to simplify things greatly. But in um, return, like many other countries, it gains access to a lot of um, supporting civilian uh, nuclear capacity. Um, and so Iran, under the guise of being part of the APT, went through a certain switch during the 1980s, which is something um, Iran experts have written vastly about. It's very interesting. Um, and would say that up until the point of the Iran-Iraq war, probably there was not a great motivation to pursue this nuclear capability. Um, the effects of the Iran-Iraq war were such that Khamenei was persuaded. One of the people who persuaded him was Rafsad Jani. All of these are, um, I'm sorry, Khomeini, not Khamenei at the time, um, to um, try and obtain a nuclear capacity, at least an embryonic one for deterrent purposes. Um, we're not sure about that process, but at any rate, certainly there um, began a drive towards a military capability. And as uh, Dr. Lerman mentioned, um, the key uh, shift there was the AQCon network, which basically um, emanated from AQCon, the father of the Pakistani atomic bomb, who proliferated um, in, in, in a systematic manner, uh, not only to Iran, but also to Libya, to North Korea. Um, and apparently the Pakistani government didn't know about it, but we're not sure about that. And really whether they knew about it if they knew about it and didn't do anything, that's not great. If they didn't know about it, that's not great. And at any rate, the Iranians managed to obtain um, uh, two generations of centrifuges uh, from him and many other uh, technological, technological advances um, that have to do also with um, you know, engineering, not just enrichment um, and, and so on. So that happened between the late 80s um, and um, in early 19s, and in, in, in 1995, by the way, caveat, in the early 19s, China was also involved in all sorts of deals with Iran around the nuclear issue um, and um, building, building Iranian expertise by having scientists come over. They were about to sign a deal. The US put big pressure on China. So that, uh, that stopped. 
Um, but then um, another benchmark was when the Russians did sign um, and provided over the years um, the Boucher uh, reactors, which was a huge point of uh, contention, uh, certainly for Israel. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that it took longer for other countries to really get on that wagon. Um, but at 1996, under Clinton, there was passed legislation that's called ILSA, the Iran Syria, uh, the Iran-Libya um, Sanctions Act, which sanctioned uh, companies that were invested in, in the infrastructure and in the energy infrastructure in those countries because it was possibly contributing to this clandestine program. Now, mind you, throughout this time, Iran is still a signatory to the NPT, of course, is denying any wrongdoing and is uh, supposing to be in um, good standing under the treaty. Um, the big breakthrough was really in 2002 in terms of the Mujahideen Khalq, um, an opposition group that obtained really incriminating information and exposed uh, the Natanz facility, the Iraq facility. Um, and very shortly after with what was going on with the invasion, US invasion of Iraq under uh, second uh, Bush II, um, obviously the Iranians were feeling uh, very uh, tenuous with the Americans right next door and agreed to freezing um, and the enrichment, uh, the enrichment activities. And for a long time, even US um, uh, intelligence reports were saying, oh, nothing's going on. They froze it or it's not really moving at that pace. There I must that tell you that uh, back then I served in the research and analysis division. I think uh, Dr. Lehman, we were together at 2002 when it was published. I, I remember the articles in the newspapers when it was when the information was uh, leaked by the Mujahideen Khalq and we were all, okay, this is actually right. happening. Let's see what we can do now. It was right. <laughs> and unfortunately, I think it didn't get the traction that it needed to get, or at least not quickly enough in the international community. And a point to notice here is that the head of the IAEA during that time, and correctly if I'm wrong, was Muhammad al-Baradeh. Right. And yes. I, um, I mean, right. And that, uh, uh, from everything that I've gathered from people who have worked at the IAEA at that time, was a huge uh, point in delaying a reaction right. from the IAEA. Now, why is that so important? Because we live in a world where information and power are not everything. Legitimacy plays a big part. And a statement from the IAEA saying this, that, or the other is happening in Iran makes a big difference in being able to harness international support for comprehensive international action. So um, that only happened in 2010, needless to say, not by um, uh, oh, no. I think it was Yuki Amano. I'm not absolutely sure about that time. Yes. Right. Um, and then, um, and then um, a lot of movement towards harnessing, um, harnessing support for sanctions, fueled very much also by the Israeli stance led at the time that basically says, you're not going to take care of it. We're going to take care of it in a very implied, but, uh, but uh, clear way and also supported by all sorts of military preparations and whatever. So it was a credible threat from the Israeli part. Um, and on a side note, in 20, uh, that's when we see the Stuxnet attack on uh, Iran's uh, centrifuges in uh, Natanz. It's a very important point because um, uh, conceptually, this is the first time that we've, that we've seen cyber 
turn into kinetic attacks. Mm -hmm. So basically a cyber attack, a very complicated cyber attack, because mind you, these are heavily protected facilities and they're air-gapped. Air-gapped means they're not necessarily online and they weren't online. And you find a way to do it even though. So you get over the air gap, it's not all connected. So very complicated operation, uh, you know, attributed to the United States and Israel, but there's no confirmation that that is the case. Um, next, we have here the beginning of the, uh, the, the joining of the embargo. Um, oh, I see 2006, I didn't put it in there. It was US, beginning of the US sanctions. And then the, uh, the EU um, oil embargo was instituted. And it's important to note that at that time, the EU even went a little farther than the United States did in their sanctions, including uh, sanctions on shipments and uh, shipping. So a uh, very important move in Europe. Um, then in 2013, um, Iran makes another move with installing advanced centrifuges. But um, in November, the interim agreement, which is the preceding agreement to the JCPOA, um, is signed only weeks after the Prime Minister of Israel told the world that Iran was probably weeks away from enriching enough, obtaining enough fissile material um, to pass the threshold to a nuclear weapon. Um, and then after two years of hashing it out, so at that point, the Iranian nuclear weapons program train is stalled on its tracks at that point. And negotiations commence to make it a more long-term agreement, which is the JCPOA signed in 2015. Okay, just let's make sure that we are at the same page. Everybody understand what is the JCPOA? What's the main principles of this deal? Right, so the, the JCPOA, um, if I put it in a very um, practical terms, was an agreement that um, its greatest advantage was that it stopped that train on its tracks. The greatest disadvantage was that it stopped the train on the tracks. It didn't explode the train. It didn't get rid of the tracks. So the train is standing there. It's better than a moving train, but certainly it's not the end of the road for that train. So that's, the, that's what we call the sunset clause. Sunset Clause is that this was an agreement that was set for a certain time frame. And what happens when that time frame elapses was of great concern and was pointed out to be one of the greatest disadvantages of this agreement. What's this, the time frame, by the way? What, what was supposed to be? There were three uh, point benchmarks there. One is a benchmark of 10 years, uh, which was the, the time frame with the strongest restrictions. And then there were going to be between 13 and 15 years of a phasing out of certain sanctions and certain uh, limitations on Iran. So um, clearly, um, you know, you have to think from day one of day 10, uh, of year 10 and of year 15. So that was the downside. The upside was if you think about being um, three to four weeks away from a nuclear weapon and you have that train standing still, that's the upside. The upside is you manage to freeze the situation, which is a crisis situation, according to everybody involved. Now, um, that's not the only problem with the agreement. There are various problems with the agreement from the perspective of, um, uh, let's say, Israel, but it's not just Israel. It's obviously the perspective of certain Gulf countries and anybody who's really um, concerned. And I think really, um, from the standpoint of the Americans, one of the problems were that it was marketed as um, a much greater 
um, a, you know, agreement than it actually was to the extent um, of, because uh, it, uh, it was for the US and the EU a great diplomatic achievement for them. But um, one other disadvantage for this agreement, which basically um, limited Iran to enriching in one facility, th these are the advantages, right? It's limiting Iran to enriching in one facility. It's limiting Iran's ability to develop and install new centrifuges, that is to shorten the time um, to break out uh, whenever they do continue. But I'm putting a caveat in that. It's not limiting enough, the issue of the centrifuges, um, certainly not from the standpoint of R&D, which we see now, because we see Iran installing new and advanced centrifuges, trying to install them at least. Um, and um, in terms of inspections, it did give unprecedented um, access to the IAEA, 24-7 coverage of declared sites, of sites we knew of, and that's another caveat, because from the beginning, we stated um, we can't trust Iran to have declared all of its sites. Um, and that's so you don't really know if you're really supervising everything. Um, and in particular, the question of um, challenge inspections at suspected sites, which is particularly pertinent to the issue that Dr. Lerman um, mentioned before as the second issue, which is the weaponization of the nuclear fissile material, um, which is done in a weapons group. And uh, that requires a certain level of investment in terms of engineers and space and whatnot, but is probably simpler to hide than enrichment, also in terms of detection of material and so on. Um, and so the challenge inspection mechanism was definitely lacking. It would have taken too long and it wasn't intrusive enough. That was another um, problem with the agreement in terms of um, Israeli perspective. And another problem was, um, and obviously there were others, but are, these are the main, was what it didn't include. So from a holistic perspective of Middle East politics, you would have liked to see several things, including Iran's support of terrorism addressed um, and Iran's funding of, uh, you know, anti, uh, and certainly Iran's presence in, uh, as we see today in, in, on our northern borders. But I think the most related issue to the nuclear issue that was not addressed and therefore got the most uh, criticism, and I think rightfully so, was the lack of inclusion of the issue of ballistic missiles, which is the third thing that Dr. Lerman mentioned as far as means of delivering a nuclear weapon. So it was lacking in terms of really stalling the fissile material developed, certainly, and it was lacking because of the inspections in stalling the issue of the weaponization. It was lacking in terms of the delivery system because it just didn't deal with the missile issue within the agreement. Not exactly true. There was mention of the, the other sanctions, the UN sanctions on the ballistic missiles, but um, certainly not uh, dealt with in the way that one would have hoped for. Now, having said all of that, and all of these are serious flaws, uh, one always have to, has to remember that we do not live in Disneyland, and uh, we always have to choose between existing realities, existing options. That's what policy is about. Um, and at that time, was um, what the, quite, the real question, the balance, I think, is was stalling and buying for time better than any other option available on the ground? And but the is it really buying time? Because my question is, I think, is about this inspection. We don't know what we don't know, you know, if, if it's not based on trust, if it's based on trust rather than 
making sure that the Iranians will not have the capability to do what, what it needs oh. to, to gain a nuclear bomb. So, Right. I don't think you can ever say that it was based on trust. It was definitely based on extreme mistrust. I don't think we can uh, uh, accuse, um, certainly not the United States, Britain, um, France, any of those uh, people of trusting Iran. But the, was the, inspe the inspection was sufficient to make sure that the Iranians are not doing anything uh, concealed that we don't know of? Well, that's a good question. And I think um, some of the answers started to trickle in much later uh, when um, Israel exposed, for example, uh, the Atomic Archive, right? Um, you all remember Prime Minister Netanyahu standing there with all of those folders. Um, and we found, for example, that there was an atomic uh, storage facility some some somewhere outside of Tehran where uranium was detected and that wasn't declared. Um, two other sites since have been suspected and have not been permitted um, access, but that's after the United States left the JCPOA, so it's harder to tie to what Iran was doing under the JCPOA. Having said that, if you look at the list of Iranian violations, which is the next slide, um, that have happened, you, you will see the importance of the JCPOA. If we can move to the second slide, because virtually on every one of those aspects, we have seen a worsening of the situation since the United States left the JCPOA in May of 2018. So initially Iran was holding to the agreement and playing with the Europeans and then uh, decided that wasn't gonna work and started going down a path. Um, and we already know, so the first, you can see in the first line, 3,500 kilograms of enriched uranium it was only allowed 300 under the JCPOA, and that was confirmed. Um, enriching level now reached 20, and as Dr. Lehrman said, 60%. And I think it's very important to state again, even though it was stated here, the head of the IAOA, IAEA said there is no reason for anyone to enrich to 60% unless they are aiming at a nuclear military capability. And it's never been done before other than for a nuclear military capability. Not that anybody today is under, I, I think, you know, the idea that Iran is not trying to promote a nuclear military capability, but this is uh, real proof. Um, Iran now is enriching in two sites, also in Fordu, um, and uh, was only allowed to do so in, in Natanz under the JCPOA. It's basically foregone all the limitations on the centrifuges, and that's a huge, um, huge difference. Um, we've seen them install much uh, newer um, centrifuges, um, not always already gassed and working, but they're certainly, uh, exactly as Dr. Lennon said, signaling what the next move will be. And going back to the train analogy, the ability that they were allowed during the JCPOA to develop, uh, continue to develop uh, a certain level of, of advanced centrifuges. So that's like the train is stuck on the tracks, but they're doing all sorts of work inside that can make it go faster once it goes again. So that's a big problem. Um, and then the stock of heavy water exceeds uh, the limits of the JCPOA. Um, as far as inspections, they are not allowed today. IEAO is not getting online timely. Um, uh, inspection footage, they are being delayed, it's being delayed by the Iranians, and of course it's being delayed, it can be tampered with, it's not, it's not live, we don't know what's really going on, and uh, the facilities that um, seem to have been uh, recovered, 
um, as facilities that uh, have at least suspicions about what was going on there uh, by Iran. So all this has happened since leaving the JCPOA. Um, and so it's important to understand that um, leaving the agreement, um, I think with the idea that increased pressure um, and snapback and sanctions on Iran in the same way that they were before and so on and so forth, was going to create a more um, amicable situation for negotiations. I think that strategy backfired. I think we're finding ourselves in a much more difficult situation now on the ground. Um, and what we're going to see um, now, now, to get back to where we are today with the JCPOA, um, there have been talks starting in April, I believe, in Vienna, side talks, not indirect talks, between the United States and Iran, preparing, trying to lay down a framework to get back to the GCPOA. But it's uh, very hard to see what kind of GCPOA exactly you will get back into. One thing that has happened when the United States um, reimposed the sanctions, uh, President Trump did not just reimpose the original sanctions that we're talking about with regard to the GCPOA, but many other sanctions. Um, and Iran is, of course, demanding that all those extra sanctions be removed. And while I think the Biden administration would be amenable to removing some of them, some sanctions, such as personal sanctions against um, IRGC, uh, the Republican Guard, um, it's going to be very hard for them and they don't want to remove. So, you know, that's one issue with the sanctions. There's an issue of timing. Um, the Iranians want all sanctions lifted before they um, stall and return to compliance with all JCPOA parameters. The Americans say, on the contrary, you return to all JCPOA parameters and sanctions will be lifted. And there's the centrifuge is issue, which has to do with centrifuges installed since. That's going to be a big issue. That's not something that they can really give on. And having said all this, uh, we have in the background uh, Tony Blinken's, um, Secretary of State Blinken's clear statement about pushing for a longer and stronger agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have to say that that's a terrific goal. It's very hard to see how it's going to be obtained under the current circumstances. Um, and which is why I'll just end with this for this portion. I truly lament Trump's move of walking away from the JCPOA in the way that he did. So in other words, I don't think it would have been necessarily bad to walk away from the JCPOA in year seven, for example. But we were in year three, and uh, it seems to be a premature mood, especially because, and this is the key issue for me, I think President Trump had great leverage. The Iranians were very, very scared of him doing exactly what he did. And the Europeans were very, very scared of doing exactly uh, what he did. And so if he had used that fear of leaving the JCPOA to renegotiate certain things, um, in particular, for example, the missile issue and the R&D issue, I, uh, things that are closely related to it, I think it, he would have had a much better um, chance of achieving some practical positive um, outcome then uh, what happened after he left, especially since the Europeans did not follow suit. And I don't think that should have been a surprise to anyone that they weren't going to follow suit. And so I think we find ourselves in a greater and more perilous situation today 
than we did before the GCPOA was instated. Okay, this was highly interesting. I would love to hear uh, Dr. Lerman, but I just want to say for everybody who is listening, uh, if you have any questions, please write them in the Q&A section and I will we'll try to address them in a few minutes. Uh, Dr. Lerman, um, first, just to clarify, to make sure we all understood, and there is a question here, to go this way from 60% to 94%, it's only weeks, like uh, Secretary Blinken said? Okay. Well, weeks, but, but of course, uh, to, to pile up uh, enough fissile material for a nuclear, military nuclear arsenal is a different matter. To begin uh, retooling uh, for weapons uh, is something that the Iranians would be very careful about because there's one point that needs to be made. Um, in addition to the IAEA inspections, the Iranians, after what happened to some of their facilities, what happened to many of their scientists, what happened to Fakhriza Day on his way to lunch, must feel naked in, in terms of intelligence. Some, somebody out there knows what they're doing. Ahmadinejad, president, former president of Iran, has accused the chief of counterintelligence of Iran of being an Israeli agent. So they, when this is the atmosphere in Iran, I would expect them to be very cautious about doing something covert on the assumption that nobody would know. What they're doing now is not covert. What they're doing now is overtly uh, rushing towards the bomb in order to force the hand of the West to, uh, to conciliate them and give them what they want in terms of sanctions relief. Okay, so maybe I, have, uh, maybe I have an unfair question to you now. Uh, because you don't you you don't represent the the IDF, but as a former as a colonel in the in the IDF, maybe you can explain me why General Kochavi, the head chief of staff, was uh, that much against getting back to the JCPOA after everything Elite said. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, it really uh, Elite is right. In, if you if you look at the current uh, time frame. But uh, we live in a region where a nation like Iran thinks in decades, and uh, we are a very ancient nation. And what would have happened is that by the end of this decade, and in some, in some respects even earlier, Iran would have had all the benefits of the JCPOA in none of its restrictions, because the, 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 the sunset clause would have, law clauses would have meant that they can spin their centrifuges in an unlimited fashion beyond a certain point onwards. And this was the major catastrophic concession that, and by the way, I don't necessarily blame President Obama as much as I blame John Kerry because Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State handled the Iranians with much greater degree of uh, firmness. And, uh, and, and, and I would say Kerry frittered away a very powerful position built of, of pressure built on the Iranians. By the way, if you look at what President, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, former Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, said in March 2015 in Congress with a very controversial speech, he didn't say make no agreement. He said, this is a bad agreement. You can get a good, a better one on each and every one of the counts that Halit mentioned. N mentioned namely, no sunset clauses, uh, ballistic missiles put in, uh, the PMD, the, the, the possible military dimension that Kerry allowed the Iranians to simply get away with. Now, this is not just an Israeli position. If you look at the French position, for example, if you actually look at the language now adopted by the G7 in Cornwall, 
says we cannot allow Iran to get the bomb, which means you have to retain some leverage. And the JCPOA gave away too much leverage for too little. This is what makes it a dangerous agreement. Which exactly what the negotiators in Vienna must do now is find a way to retain enough real effective leverage on Iran. And against the possibility that this may not happen, Israel must retain freedom of action. Freedom of action meaning having a military option, kinetic or otherwise, aimed at the Iranian project, which we would use if nothing else works. So, okay, so I, I want to, to get deep into what you just said and take it to the issue of the sanctions. So Elit mentioned that there were a lot of sanctions that were imposed on Iran in the Trump administration. Were they effective? Can they influence the nuclear program of Iran? Not directly, not much. By now, the Iranians have enough scientific knowledge, enough, they have a large industrial base, they have the capacity to tool these, uh, both the, the, the weapon and the centrifuges uh, without relying too much. Here and there, you can foil some delicate uh, uh, piece of material, material or material that they need, but basically the sanctions are not in a direct block for the train. Uh, on, on, the ra- on the trail, on the tracks. But if you uh, can bring the Iranian economy to the point of meltdown, and then the tracks would warp because the country would face a, a catastrophic crisis. Iran is fully dependent on oil exports. It's, it, it produces very little else, maybe also pistachios, uh, good ones, by the way, but, uh, but that's about it. Their, their industries are being eaten away by Chinese manipulations. In, in, in return for the favor of buying Iranian oil, they have basically, the, the Chinese are flooding Iran with cheap products. Uh, the, the Iranian economic situation is very fragile. And therefore the sanctions are a powerful tool to destabilize, ultimately destabilize this evil regime, uh, which is committed to Israel's destruction. And this, therefore, to give up the sanctions must be only uh, something that is done only if you have obtained for the Iranians a response on all the matters that are important to us and to the international community. I must say that from here in Alma Center, what we felt in 2015 is that there was a lot of pressure on Iran with the sanctions, and then the sanctions were canceled and there was the JCPOA, and it actually opened the, the, the door uh, for the Iranians to get much more involved in the Middle East. Um, you know, all the, the proxies that we see in, in Syria and in Yemen, all of this didn't exist uh, prior to 2015. It, it, it was very minor. Much more, uh, much more aggressive, yes. Yeah? Yes, in, it, today it's a different reality here in the Middle East. And, my understanding is part of that was the fact that Iran could enjoy a better economic situation uh, that actually uh, lift off all the bans and sanctions and difficult and economic difficulties of, and of vice uh, versa. Depression. Vice versa, as you know very well from your vantage point, after the Trump sanctions were reimposed, Hezbollah found themselves almost without a penny 
flowing through the usual Iranian channels. And they started uh, basically hitting the Lebanese uh, pocket, which made them much less popular than they have been before. Right. Uh, so the sanctions are an effective tool, not directly, but indirectly. And you have to be patient until you see the fruits of the sanctions. That's, you I have think to have time in order to be patient. That is the other part of this. And, and yeah. time is what, and time is what Israel can buy here and there by all sorts of uh, undeclared actions, which are part of the so-called CBW, the campaign between the wars, which have, at the end of the day, you mentioned Stuxnet, I'm not owning up to it, but the, the, the legend has it that oh, this was a joint American-Israeli operation called Olympic Games, uh, and, uh, and that, that had uh, some very significant results. So um, there are things that need and can be done and need to be done to gain that kind of time. Certainly, I think uh, time is exactly of the essence, but and I also think it's always important to point out what is always what is at the balance. So if you're talking about sanctions were lifted and then Hezbollah had money and sanctions were imposed and Hezbollah didn't have money, which I think is a very accurate description, but what happened on the other side is what you gained in the nuclear program in terms of time. So you have to understand that you're always balancing threats here. Unfortunately, I don't think we're at the position where we can have everything. I think Israel has tremendously effective tools and also international legitimacy to take care of its interests in Lebanon and Syria. And I think we've seen that happen uh, very well over the past few years. It's very unfortunate that we have to do these things, but uh, so far have had uh, the blanket to do it. And hopefully, uh, if this American administration is nuanced in its perceptions of security, uh, Israel will allow, be allowed at the very least to continue with the same freedom of actions that it had uh, before. And hopefully um, uh, the United States will say at least in Eastern Syria, um, and, uh, but we can't count on it. It doesn't look like that is necessarily the trend. Uh, but again, one of the important things, I think in terms of pal policy and, and practice, this is not about uh, any kind of faith in the Iranians or in anyone else is that the Israeli uh, policy that was uh, very strongly objecting to the nuclear agreement had certain advantages for sure. But uh, the fact that even after the agreement was signed, the interim agreement was signed, and after the agreement was signed, the opposition to it uh, from Israel was uh, manifested in the way that it was in a very pub public and absolute manner, um, kept Israel out of the room, out of the negotiation room, kept Israel out of a position, I think, of influence uh, about certain points that could have been and should have been um, uh, pushed stronger. And I hope and believe that this time around, uh, the Israeli policy will be more nuanced, but also more effective. Okay, uh, so I, I want to take it should be removed now. from the American political context, which colored, colored some Absolutely. of the perceptions between 2012 and 2015. I, I want to take the discussion back to the Middle East. Yep. And I want to ask you, Elite. Okay, a few weeks from now, negotiation failed. The Iranians are enriching to 94%. How the Middle East is going to look like? Okay, so what you're asking is, what does the Middle East look like with a nuclear Iran? Um, yeah. Even though I want to say there's a step in the middle there, okay? So um, the, the question of will Iran break out and how long it will take it and when it will decide to do so, these are all questions that we 
can at the moment answer. We can estimate because there are a lot of factors that go, in, go into breakout down. So I don't necessarily want to go into it now because you're asking about the assumption that, that Iran is in fact a nuclear power. She has crossed the nuclear threshold, which is my favorite issue because it's nuclear deterrence and nuclear deterrence strategy. Um, and I think um, one of the things to consider here is that while we have seen in the world um, examples of stable nuclear dyads between adversaries, right? So you can look at the Cold War, you can look at India and Pakistan. And what I mean by stable is not necessarily that they are lacking in conflict, but they have not resulted in a nuclear exchange of any of sort. Um, and that's not to say that there haven't been very dangerous um, points along the way. Um, there are several observations uh, to say that about a hypothetical dyad in the Middle East. And um, such a hypothetical dyad, if it's composed even of only two nations, um, if we look at history, we see that the early stages of nuclear dyads are extremely, extremely dangerous. And this is very important to to remember, and if we can give an excuse for the Americans and the Soviets that this was the first time that nuclear weapons ever existed and there was a tremendous learning process that needed to be taken into account, um, then we look at India and Pakistan in the late 90s and the Indians were so convinced that they have learned all the lessons from the Cold War and they were going to construct this in a way that was going to be a stable nuclear relationship between two adversaries and boy, were they wrong, because there is something uh, in my mind structural into a new nuclear power that tempts it to test its power, not necessarily its nuclear power, but the power that his, it has obtained under a nuclear umbrella. And so this is called in international relations stability instability paradox. Also, if nuclear level is such that everybody wants to avoid it, then the subnuclear level, that is the conventional level, becomes very, very active. Um, Are we going to see more, more countries following Iran? That's the first point is even if nobody follows Iran, even if nobody follows Iran, what we can expect is an extremely, extremely volatile situation. Just think of a Cuban Missile Crisis in Lebanon, just thrown mm. it out there so you have fun. Um, and, and think about the fact that uh, we don't have an embassy in Tehran. I mean, nobody has an embassy, nobody in the United States, who has an embassy in Tehran even today? So the situation is- You have is, an embassy in Iraq, you can uh, talk yeah. about. But, but again, if you, if you wanna go into these, into these details of nuclear deterrence, there's a lot of stuff to be worried about. What is the Iranian command and control system? Who runs it? And we know that the IRGC is in, is in charge of many nuclear facilities. The IRC is also- Okay, we lost elite, so meanwhile- Interfacing with terrorist organizations. Um, sorry. Um, Elite, I'm sorry, we can't hear you. So I'm moving to Iran and I want to ask you, Iran, does Israel has a red line? And what is just, it? Just before that, uh, very quickly to go back to Halit's image, I, 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 I used the vision of George Orwell's little story about shooting an elephant. In this story, uh, let's say Iran has the only nuclear weapon around and Israel has done something that angers the neighborhood, like that elephant in the story. And so the entire neighborhood will line up behind the Iranians asking them, you have a gun, why don't you use it? 
So you don't actually need to assume some Iranian crazy design to just wipe Israel off the map in the middle of the night in order to see how this scenario can quickly deteriorate into something catastrophic. And the second thing is the cascade of other countries going uh, there, the Saudis, the Egyptians, uh, the Turks, and that's enough to send a chill down Greek spines, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, to use an image, North Korea cracked the dam of the NPT, but the crack did not bring the dam down. If there's an Iranian cross crack, that's the end of the dam. And we are going to a world with 20 or 30 nuclear powers. And maybe John Mersheimer thinks this is not a nightmare. He probably takes some med strong medication. Uh, this is a very frightening proposition. And now, as to the red line, uh, Israel has made very made it very clear that we would not tolerate an Iranian uh, break, and therefore um, uh, the IDF has a strategic command, which is fully dedicated to uh, Iranian options. Uh, we have a range of uh, possible actions that uh, some of them kinetic, some of them less so, some of them overt, covert, some of them ultimately and possibly overt. Um, frankly, 10 years ago, the United, it was the United States government which encouraged us to talk, for example, to the Chinese and explain to them that we would not tolerate a nuclear Iran. And therefore, if they let this happen, if they don't join the sanction system, they are risking a regional war. And what was valid for us to say to the Chinese on behalf of the Obama administration 11 years ago is still relevant today. Okay, so um, we are like over time. So uh, I want to thank you both. This was a fascinating discussion and uh, I think we could spend a few more hours to get into the details. <laughs> uh, I hope we actually succeeded in answering some of the questions and the basics ideas uh, in this very complicated issue. I always say that, uh, I didn't say that, of course, uh, Foucault said that knowledge is power. And in the Alma Center, we believe that it's important to provide knowledge and uh, it will enable us a better understanding of the reality, especially the reality in, in the complicated Middle East. Uh, there are tons of questions and we, all I can say, you know, to wrap things up and you said a lot of things and reality looks pretty troubling is that we truly hope that Biden's administration will find a way and you said there was a declaration. Find a way uh, to- Stronger to, and longer and more. Stronger and longer. Uh, to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear power anytime in the future. And, and there's a little, there's a question on the chat on the history of Iran. I would say this, the uh, intervention of the allies against Iran has left some Iranians like Ahmadinejad convinced in 1945, the bad guys won and the good guy Hitler lost. Uh, he even tried to make this point in Berlin when he visited. The Germans uh, were not amused. But uh, we, are, we shouldn't be amused either. A nation that hosts um, uh, competitions of caricatures lampooning the Holocaust is a threat not only to, to, uh, to us as a nation, but to the uh, sanity of, of the world. So um, let's not delude ourselves about the nature of the people we're dealing with, even if Zarif has a good sense of humor in English. Yeah, especially in English. Uh, different impression. 
Um, and since you answered the question, there was another question here about Saudi Arabia, which I decided not to address because we're going to have a special webinar next month about uh, Sunni uh, radical Islam, and we'll probably address Saudi Arabia as well. So uh, keep up uh, the updates and follow us to see where, when and where exactly this will be uh, handled. Um, thank you very much for being with us today. If you like what we, what we do, if you're interested in what we do, you're invited to enter our website, to be part of Alma's community, to donate, to share uh, our publications. Uh, we also have uh, diverse educational programs in various topics concerning uh, Northern Israel uh, challenges and security. And you are invited to check the website and take a look. Uh, although things are uh, slowly getting back to normal here in Israel, uh, the time to travel is close by, we're having hope. Uh, one thing that COVID-19 taught us is that we can bring Israel's northern border to you in a comfort of your home or office. We can do everything today digitally and physically. So we have a new tool uh, to educate. Uh, all of our programs are available both digitally and physically. You're invited again to take a look at our website Elite, Dr. Lerman, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm Saridza, we live from the Galilee, Northern Israel. Shalom, and we'll see you next time, next month.